welcome to this very special 5 by 15 event with Sebastian Junger and John Anderson. And it is a huge honor for us to be hosting them both this evening. Um, thank you all so much for being here. Please put your questions in the Q&A box, which you'll find at the bottom of your screen. And I'm sure that John Lee is gonna to come to as many of them as he can towards the end. So let me do a quick introduction to our speakers this evening. Sebastian Junger, who I'm sure John Lee will introduce in a bit more detail, is um, author of Tribe, um, and The Perfect Storm, and he's the filmmaker behind the extraordinary film Restrepo, which was nominated for um, an Academy Award. But we're here this evening to talk about this book. It's very fitting on what the Prime Minister is calling Freedom Day, that we are here to talk about this fantastic new book, Freedom, um, and, um, and it's brilliant, and it is available now in all good bookshops, and including from Newham Books, our book partner. Details will be in the chat. Um, and interviewing uh, this evening, we have the fantastic John Lee Anderson joining us from California. He's an award-winning journalist. He's been a staff writer at The New Yorker um, since the 1990s. He's reported from across Latin America and indeed across the world, um, from wars in the Ukraine to Libya, Syria to Angola. Um, he's profiled everyone from Gabriel Garcia Marquez to Pinochet to Hugo Chavez. And he has written numerous books, including Che Guevara, The Fall of Baghdad and Dispatches from Afghanistan. So it is a huge honor to have John Lee with us. And I am handing over to you now and saying welcome. Thank you very, very much for being here. Thank you, Daisy. Sebastian, it's great to see you. A uh, real honor and pleasure to join you here. Um, and uh, I just want to say before we, we launch in to share with the, the viewers that um, I've known Sebastian for, gosh, quite a few years. I was, I was remembering that I think we met in a pool hall in New York in 1997, just around the time uh, you were about to publish The Perfect Storm, which would launch you into a kind of stellar universe of authors. And I was, I think, just also uh, running around with my Che book, which had just come out in the years since then. Um, and I remember you, you were asking me about if I knew anything about the Mai Mai rebels in the Congo, which I didn't, but I'd been to Africa and you were keen to go to war, as I recall. And I, just to recap your career and the years, the, these intervening years, of course, not long after our meeting, uh, you know, came the 9-11 attacks, September 11th, 2001, and we both went off to war for respective publications. You, you did a lot of work for Vanity Fair, me and others, and myself for The New Yorker, and we were often in a similar conflicts, usually not at the same time. I'm not sure we ever crisscrossed there, but we would, we would meet up every couple of years in New York or other places. Uh, sadly, we've met at a funeral or two of friends of ours, uh, mutual friends. And um, But back to you and your career, after the perfect storm, you became a household name um, in, in the United States. And so did the title of your book, um, uh, The Perfect Storm, which everybody uses. Um, you know, uh, I have to almost kick myself not to use it nowadays. And But in your journalism, um, which you know, you seem compelled to explore the, the, the conflicts of our time. Um, you began uh, an, an oeuvre which continues to this day, culminating in freedom. Um, Daisy mentioned tribe, but there's another one called war. And 
and several other books, but they have common themes and your career uh, seemed to be about, has seemed to be about um, exploring themes which, which I find very present in, in this book, Freedom. And it has to do with uh, what motivates um, usually men to go to war, uh, themes of survival, fraternity, um, uh, nationhood, um, uh, bravery, uh, survival. Um, and, and, I, and so without getting too deep into it, I've, I found that you explored you know, all of those previous themes in this short novella length book, which I read, you know, I, um, I read through in one sitting. It's a, it's a lovely read and a compelling read. And you explore a multiplicity of topics in it, but we come back and forth between the narrative of this, this journey, which was uh, about a 400 mile walk that you took with several other men um, and I'd like you to tell us about that, but uh, which started in the East Coast of the United States and went uh, eventually West into Pennsylvania, which once upon a time was the old frontier of colonial America. And it seems to me, although it's a, a subtext of this uh, trek you took, that it was a healing journey an uns in an unspoken sort of way by a group of men, all of whom had their wounds. Some were veterans of war, some were of shooting in those wars of being soldiers and some were like yourself were, were veterans of living alongside them in those places. Um, and, um, and so before we get into it, I, I really would just like to share with the, the, the readers your writing because um, I think, you know, like, like I have been, they'll feel compelled by your narrative style. Um, and I'd like you to pick up uh, where I leave off, if you don't mind, if you can, if you, I'm, I'm reading off a phone because I, I, I was in Central America and couldn't get the actual paper book, but oh. you'll, you'll know where I leave off. So um, I'm just gonna, if you don't mind, I'll read it and then I'd like you to pick up. You mean uh, pick, up, pick up discussing or pick up reading? Which... Pick up reading. Okay. And, and if you don't mind, um, uh, ending. I'm going to end um, on, um, let's see. Let me just get there. Sorry. I'm going to hang on. <clears throat> I'm going to start at the beginning. Okay. And I, if I actually, I sent you an email about this, but maybe you didn't see it. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. No, I didn't. No, that's okay. That's all right. Let me let me find the thing on my screen now. I'm gonna have to do that. There. If you like, I can start from the beginning. If you like me to read it, I got it now. I've got it. Here we go. And where I stop, I'd like you to. Re I'm gonna read through to um, without any intention of returning from the top, page three, and I'd like you to read on to if history ever required it. It's at the very beginning. Okay. The change was immediate. The country opened up west of Harrisburg and suddenly we could drink from streams and build fires without getting caught and sleep pretty much wherever we wanted. We'd walked the railroad tracks from Washington to Baltimore to Philly and then turned west at the main line 
and made Amish country by winter. The Pennsylvania fields lay bare and hard in the cold, but there were seams and folds in that country, strips of woods along stream bottoms, windbreaks between the cornfields, ridges left wild for hunting, where a man could easily pass the night unnoticed. Once we cooked dinner on a steep hill above the town of Christiana and went to sleep in a snowstorm, listening to the clatter of carriage horses on the street below. At dawn, we walked into town for pancakes and coffee and then headed up on up the railroad tracks before anyone whose job it was to stop us even knew we'd been there. But outside Harrisburg, where the Juniata River runs into the Susquehanna in her great breaching of Blue Mountain, we seem to have simply been released into the wild. Early settlers tended to push up the major rivers until they ran into the first set of waterfalls, the fall line, and these spots became jumping off points for people who were even more desperate or adventurous. At Blue Mountain, the Susquehanna drops down a series of ledges and deepens in the alluvial soil of the coastal plain. And that was where a Welsh emigre named John Harris established a business poling rafts across the river in the 1730s. What was then called Indian country effectively started on the other side. And when Harris's passengers stepped ashore, they found themselves in a forest of enormous hardwoods that extended almost unbroken for the next thousand miles to the Great Plains. If you want to take it from there. Um, they were trappers and traders and fugitives from justice and young men scouting land for their families and eventually the families themselves. Many came on heavy oak frame wagons that were cocked like boats and carried everything, food, tools, crockery, fabric, maybe an heirloom quilt, that the forest couldn't provide. The wagons were low slung for stability and tented with canvas and had iron strapped wheels six inches wide that had no shock absorbers whatsoever. The men walked with long barreled flintlock rifles over their shoulders and the women rode if they were pregnant and walked otherwise and the children were up and down off the wagons all day long. These people made their way up the western bank of the Susquehanna through the Blue Mountain Gap and then turned onto the Juniata which ran fast and clear all the way from the great escarpments of the Alleghenies. She was the only river valley that led west in the entire state and became a threshold of sorts to a better life or an early death for thousands of settlers who headed into the wilderness without any intention of returning. 300 years later, we walked through a cluster of camper trailers between the river and some standard gauge railroad and then climbed onto the tracks themselves we could hear trucks downshifting on the last hill before Harrisburg on Route 22 across the river. It was late April and the Juniata was running fast and full in the spring flood, an occasional tree rolling in her current that had been undercut along the banks and toppled. She flowed between ridges that looked too steep to climb and ran compass straight for miles at a time. There were creeks for fresh water and flood rack for firewood and the woods, and the woods so thick you could practically sleep within sight of a church steeple or a police station and no one would know. It struck us as serious. You want me to keep, I keep going? Yeah, I'd like you to, to, to carry on till um, the next end of the next paragraph, if you don't mind, till, till where struck, no, history ever required it, ending there. It struck us as serious country, the kind where you kept an eye on the weather and slept next to whatever weapon you had. All we had was a machete, but after dark, we all knew where it was usually thunked into a tree somewhere central. 
gunfire occasionally bounced off the shelf rock and, de and detritus up the upper ridges. And one morning an A-10 thundered through so low that we could almost make out the pilot in the cockpit. Not two days walk from Harrisburg, we passed a, a sign nailed to a tree that warned the federal government that the property was, quote, that the property, quote, would be defended by any means necessary. There were meth addicts in the towns and black bears up on the ridges and the remains of old locks and canals along the river that almost looked ready to be returned to good use if history ever required it. Thanks, Sebastian. I think, you know, that's just an extraordinary beginning. And, you know, you clearly are tackling the American creation myth here. You know, it's this book works on so many levels. Uh, at, at least that's how I read it. It's not only a, a journey you took, but it's right there at that Juniata Gap where the river punches through the mountains going west, which you know you 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 tell us in the book was the old line between native lands and and white white lands until uh, something happened and and the white settlers were able to punch through and go west. This is. Um, this is uh, the, your idea of, of freedom, though, is it, what I want to ask is, you know, why freedom at the margins? Why, why explore the notion of freedom via this walk along the margins, the marginalia of civilization, along some railroad tracks, um, under underpasses and, you know, at the edges of towns, um, why not from a mountaintop, you know, or a sailboat in the middle of the sea. What led you to this and to, yeah. to explore it from this journey? Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Um, I will say just to begin with as a framework for our conversation about freedom, that our safety, our ability to live and to survive even comfortably comes from the fact that we're part of society. Humans die in nature almost immediately if they're alone. Uh, there's a fleeting freedom on a mountaintop, but it's not a place you can live. Uh, humans need each other to survive. And society wouldn't exist if we weren't in some ways all obligated to it. We all have obligations to our society and in return, it allows us to, to live. The question about freedom comes from the understanding that at some point obligation, obligation to your society becomes oppression by the society or by the ruling elite. And when that happens, your, your freedom internally is in, in danger. Um, in, in the, the most immediate threat to freedom, of course, is an enemy tribe or enemy nation coming in and killing and enslaving everybody. And society is organized to defend itself against that. Um, but once you have the organization and the martial inclination to defend your society against an enemy, a, a corrupt ruler has the equipment to oppress his, his own people or her own people. So this, this, this discussion of freedom comes from um, this sort of dynamic uh, tension that occurs in a society that is well equipped enough to defend itself, but is also guarded, uh, sufficiently guarded against oppression from within. So what we did on this on this trek, I took um, two or three guys. The number varied depending on on the leg. We did it off and on over the course of a year. Um, we walked in all seasons. Um, usually there was about four of us on this trip. Trip. We'd all been in a lot of combat. 
Uh, two of them were American combat veterans from Afghanistan. Um, I'm, I'm a journalist. Another guy was a, a Spanish photographer that I got became very close to after my friend Tim died. He was with my friend Tim when, when he died. Um, so I got to know Guillermo very, very well. Uh, so we set off from Washington, D.C., walking along the railroad lines. We picked the lines because it's a kind of swath of no man's land that crisscrosses America. It's unmonitored. It's un basically uncontrolled. Uh, it's illegal to be on the lines. It's private property. It's, it's owned by the freight lines. Um, and as a result, there's very few people there. And you can kind of do what you want. I mean, if you, if you can avoid being um, uh, spotted by the police uh, or called in by the engineers and have the pol police come pick you up, if you can avoid that, it, it, it's, it's, your, it's your empire, right? And so we were sleeping under bridges and abandoned buildings and, and cooking over fires and getting our water out of creeks. And as I said in the book, um, over the course of about 400 miles, we went from DC to Philadelphia up the East Coast, then we turned West and headed for Pittsburgh. We got almost to Pittsburgh. Over the course of 400 miles, most nights we were the only people in the world who knew where we were. There's many definitions of freedom and they're all worth talking about, but that's, that very physical definition is an important one. And I found it frankly, hard one. The, 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 the work of this walk was tremendous. We were carrying 60 or 70 pounds, moving 10, 15, 20 miles a day. Um, but it was, for me, it was an intoxicating form of freedom. And when I came to write this book many years later, I cast my mind back on my life and tried to figure out when I was most free and uh, this, this amazing trek that we took some years ago jumped out in my mind as this amazing example of, of freedom in my personal life. Two things come to mind. Why a train track and why not say, I don't know, the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail, these, these extraordinary pathways that go along the spine of America's great mountain ranges. What, what about the train track in particular appealed to you? Because again, it feels subversive, you know, you're on the margins, what, you're, you're with the miscreants, the outlaws, the criminals, the, you know, for, we're, we're speaking to a mostly British audience and I, I was thinking it in, in, in the British context, these would be the gypsies, the travelers who still pitch up in little country towns and, you know, um, pitch, pitch their caravans on the edges of towns and while they're there, the you know the good people of the town are pretty much freak out because th these people are scary they're nomads they don't follow the rules in a very settled land america is much more full of that idea of the wild frontier and there's so much to it nowadays you know what is that wild frontier but anyway to go back to my question you know again why not you know the jim muir experience rather than the, uh, you know, the, yeah. the hobo experience. <laughs> well, you kind of answered your own question. I mean, we love that it was subversive. We love that we were sort of had to get away with something, but on a sort of more philosophical level, um, uh, I mean, keep in mind, we'd all been in a lot of combat. The idea that we were doing something together that was risky, where we had to collaborate to stay out of sight, to maintain a kind of situational awareness um, when the trains came up on us, they came very fast. We had to hide, not just get out of the way, but we had to hide because the engineers would call us in. And so we got very tuned into, tuned into our environment. And we could tell when trains were coming. The freight trains, trains were slow. They go 70 miles an hour. 
but the passenger trains would go 120. And in order to get out of the way in time, we had to be able to sense them before we could even hear them. And I don't know what we were sensing, just some shifting in the molecules of the air or something. I don't know what it was, but we could sense it and we would hide. And so being tuned into your environment like that reminded all of us very much of the combat environment. So there was the appeal of that. But also, I wanted to see my own society as an outsider. I mean, listen, the Pacific Crest Trail is gorgeous. I love the wilderness. It's a different experience. You're having an experience with yourself and with God or whatever you want to call the wilderness. I wanted to see my own society as an outsider. The interface between nomads and sedentary people has been happening since the advent of agriculture 10,000 years ago. And one of the very interesting things about that interface is that it's often the nomadic peoples who are materially poor, but enormously uh, self-defining, enormously autonomous compared to sedentary farmers. Um, it's often the materially poor nomads who have a kind of disdain and arrogance about their, their wealthy sedentary neighbors. And I found a wonderful quote from the Yomut of Northern Iran, a sedentary horse culture, a, a nomadic horse culture, pastoral culture. And they they, if I'm, if I can remember correctly, their song was, uh, we do not have a mill with willow trees. In other words, we're not farmers. We do not have a mill with willow trees. I, I do not have a mill with willow trees. I have a horse and quirt. Quirt is a kind of whip. I have a horse and quirt. I will kill you and go. Um, nomadic peoples often feel sorry for their wealthy neighbors who are stuck in the valleys toiling behind a plow. And one of the things I really wanted to recreate was what hardship will buy you in terms of autonomy and what, what these towns would look like from our hiding places along the tracks. We'd be looking through the foliage at all these brightly lit houses on a winter night, people indoors, warm, having dinner, and we're out there shivering they don't even know we're there. We're getting away with something. And that to me was, you know, maybe it's the 10 year old boy in me, but that to me was completely irresistible. Did you feel the disdain of the nomad for the settled peoples in the towns that you walked along or walked past? I mean, yeah, did, you feel, I mean did you feel that? Did you come to feel that kind of arrogance of, the, of freedom of the nomad? Yeah, no one knew where we were, who we were. We did what we wanted. Um, we weren't completely like the original nomads. We were not completely um, without a relationship to them. When we needed food, we'd walk into town, we'd buy some food, we'd keep walking, we'd get back out on the lines. And you know, the thing about railroad lines, I mean, if you, you know, if, you, if you're a fugitive from justice, say, or you just don't want to talk to anybody, railroad lines are the way to go. I hate to sort of tip, give anyone tips here, but the, the thing about railroad lines is they're quite straight. And if you move it, sometimes the police were looking for us and we'd move at night. And anyone out there at night, any, any, any official is in a car or on a train and they have to have their headlights on. So you can see the authorities coming from a mile away, right? And we, just, we would just step into the darkness and they would have no idea with their sort of tunnel vision of their big bright light. They would, they would have no idea where we were. And that to me seemed like an amazing metaphor for the, the power, both the power and the blindness of modern society and the fact that we were so easily able to evade that absolutely made us feel, feel sort of superior in, in maybe a juvenile way, but there it was, we felt it. There are parts of the book actually that do read a bit like a manual for those who want to 
to sort of go on the lamb. I'm, I'm, uh, and I, I don't mean that you intended that, but there is again, this subversive quality to it. And I mean that in the, you know, in the broadest sense of the term uh, w without um, a value judgment of a society that has built itself upon the conquest and very often the extermination of the other. You, you use this journey and your exploration of what you're doing uh, to, to really to, to, I think, puncture a hole in the, in the American creation myth of, you know, the, the wild land settled uh, that became a sanctuary, a kind of state of rapture uh, in which the, you know, the poor and the oppressed of Europe, uh, God-fearing peoples came and settled, you know, amidst the wilderness and made it productive. You know, that's the original American creation myth. We now live at a time in which all of that's been torn asunder uh, for all the reasons we know. The last presidency, not least the last presidency, the idea of uh, the infallibility of the, uh, of the American empire has been um, really torn apart, both by, by uh, that unmentionable uh, uh, guy who served as president for four years, but also the failure uh, of the United States to prevail in the wars it chose to fight abroad over the last 20 years. So I think, and I, I think you probably agree that we live in an, in a, in a, in an unprecedented time of reassessment uh, in America. And, and we're seeing it all around us, whether it's the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter and, 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 the, and the kind of campaigns coming from the right uh, and the white right in the United States uh, about what this country is and, and, and the kind of historiography that we've built it upon, you know, uh, and we're even fighting over, you know, how history should we be taught now. And, and I think again, in this, you know, rather exquisitely in this, in this short, but dramatic journey and book about it, you know, you explore, I was just n noting them down, you know, American history, concepts of freedom, wilderness versus towns, autonomy versus authority, public versus private uh, property, you know, even you even went into the kind of physiology of walking. You call it the cadence, and that led you off to a very extended and fascinating soliloquies about the nature of nomadism versus settled people. You you brought up the the, the way the poor in the Great Depression in America used the railroads and also the roads to just move along. You know, um, and and. Something I came across in, in that first chapter, you, you've broken the book up in, into three um, in, in run, uh, fight, and think. And I'd like you to maybe explain that why. But this, this, the, idea, the, the idea of freedom, the idea of freedom, it's something, again, I think, in, keeping in mind that we have a mostly British audience, that this is something that feels uniquely American, this, both this term and the discussion of it and the polemics surrounding it. And we seem, you know, we've wrapped ourselves in the flag and leader after leader, it's in our national anthem, it's in our psyche that we are free, that we are all about freedom. I remember George W. Bush and freedom fries and, you know, um, they hate our freedom. Remember how he used to say that? Speaking of the, you know, Islamist terrorists that had attacked the US. And, and it's interesting. It's a kind of um, it's a kind of national um, 
what's the word? You know, it's, 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 it's what? Crisis. <laughs> well, it's both a national crisis, no, but I think we all, as Americans, we all carry this, this word within us. So I'm not surprised that you're exploring it. That's what I'm getting at. There was just something, it's kind of a paraphrase quote that I found, the freedom of criminals, soldiers, foul and firefighters. And, and the way they joined small bands or, or bands of men, like-minded men to survive and to persevere in their quest for freedom. You know, for those who very often they have to pass horrific tests or rituals of acceptance. And for those who pass the tests of belonging to such a group can feel wildly liberating, even though it must be one of the most oppressive forms of government ever devised. And so, I'm not sure you were speaking about your, your little group. And I'm not sure uh, if you intended your book as a metaphor for what's happening in America today. But I, I, want, to, I want you to address, if you can, yeah. you know, those issues. What does yeah. this say about the country we live in today? Right, uh, so you know, the, the American Revolution brought about independence from the British government um, and from the crown. And one of the things that the framers did was make themselves um, vulnerable, accountable to the same laws that everyone else was, right on up to president, right? So these are very powerful elite men in American society, colonial society, and they did not write themselves out of the system of accountability that was applied to everyone else. Of course, the kings and queens of Europe for hundreds, thousands of years were not accountable to the, to the populace, right? They were law unto themselves. So one of the things, you know, I was talking about, you need to be able to defend yourself against an enemy that will kill or enslave you. You also need a system where the leadership um, is fair, right? The things that they ask you to do, they themselves also have, have to do, right? So in theory anyway, and there's lots of loopholes in the tax laws and all that, and it's an abomination. But in theory, um, Americans pay a lot of taxes, but so do the so do the legislators that write those laws. Um, so so does the IRS that 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 does all the accounting and chases down the money that you owe, and so do the police chiefs and the generals, right on up to president. Like we all owe taxes. So a free society is one where the leadership is not um, uh, removed from obligation. It's identical to the obligations of the left, and that's very important. And one of the interesting things about nomadic society. Um, is that there is very, because you can't carry around a lot of wealth, there's often very little social, uh, there isn't much um, class distinction in nomadic societies. I mean, there's a leader, there's a sort of war leader often, but, but really the, the, no one has sort of extra rights. You can't pass down wealth very easily in a, in a nomadic society. After agriculture started, you needed to come, and democracy was the answer to this problem, you needed to come up with a system that basically meant that the, that the populace was not under the thumb of the ruler. And so I would say in America, we, I mean, this is what was absurd about George Bush, what he said, Al-Qaeda Al -Qaeda didn't hate our freedom, right? I mean, they hated our involvement with Israel, they hated that there were American troops in the Holy Land, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They couldn't care less about our freedom. Our freedom is given to us by us, right? It's self-given through our, our laws and our Bill of Rights and our Constitution. And so the, the question for, for me, like what was very clear on our walk, on our trek, was that we all owed things to the group because things had to happen. Fires had to get built. 
People had to scout ahead to see if there were cops or where a good camping spot would be. We had to carry weight, um, a lot of weight. We had to get food. I mean, there were all kinds of things that had to happen. If you were a freeloader in that group, you would have just, we would have just dumped you, right? You're not part of us. You owe us. We all owe us, right? And our freedom as a group came from our our individual obligation to the group. And what the colonists found, what the pioneers found, the settlers found in the Juniata and on across the American continent was that in the wilderness, they escaped the scrutiny and the control of the colonial and then the American government, the control of the church um, for this amazing wilderness. But the wilderness was a place of incredible danger. And what they needed to do to survive out there because the native populations did not want them there, right? So there was a very bloody series of Indian war, what were called the Indian Wars. Um, and so the, in order to survive, these settlers had to band together and basically form a mutual defense pact where every single person, particularly adult males, vowed to risk and give his life to defend the community if necessary. And if you, as an adult male particularly, if you were not willing to carry a, a rifle and a scalping knife and a tomahawk at all times, even in your fields as you plowed, you had to have a weapon with you at all times because you never knew when you were gonna have to fight. And if you weren't willing to do that, you were not wanted in the com community and you were cast out. So these people had freedom from the government, uh, but not freedom from one another. And that is the eternal human um, situation. It's the eternal human truth. Like you, 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 do, you can never be completely free and completely safe at the same time because your safety comes from the collaborative uh, defense of the community against an enemy. And, so how does, how does yeah. that play into the kind of the argument we're having today in America? I mean, you know, it tends to be the right, the political right wing that talks about freedom right? It tends to be. And indeed, if you go out into the heartlands, as you did, you know, we, you know, we have magazines called Prepper and Survivalist, the kind of guys out there in the wilderness, in a way, you know, kind of doing what you were doing, or you were roaming into that terrain, uh, this, this type of American that believes he's still a frontiersman, he's, you know, he can survive in the bush, he can uh, kill for his, kill his meat, um, you know, and he'll build defenses against the enemy. And very often, too, they share notions, rather collective paranoid notions about what the federal government is or the outside world, you know. So that they also believe that they are defending th freedom right. on, on, a, on a kind in a kind of mythical landscape that nonetheless is still empowered by present day politicians. So how does, how does your book and, and your, you know, your exploration of this term and this theme play into that, play into this present day polemic, this duel about, about what freedom is in America, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I would just say that they're flat out wrong, right? I mean, the idea that you don't owe anything to your society. I mean, think about these guys. Um, and there are women in the, involved in this too, obviously. Um, everything around them is the, the guns, the trucks, the gasoline, uh, the surgery they might need and the kidney stone, the kidney stone extraction they might need in, at age 55, you know, whatever. 
all of this is provided by society and by a supply chain that is overseen and regulated by the federal government or it wouldn't exist, right? So the idea that they're somehow free is completely absurd. What I would say about that word is that it feels so sacred. I mean, freedom, freedom is very closely tied to human dignity. And so if you wanted, if you want to do something that is morally dubious and you stick the word freedom on it, it sometimes gets people to sort of back off with their scrutiny, right? So what these guys are saying, they're really talking about their rights, okay? Free, they're, they're not using the word freedom correctly. They're talking about their rights, their right to carry a gun, their right to you know, not pay taxes or whatever. Whatever it is, it's actually not freedom. They're talking about their rights within the system that they have voluntarily chosen to be part of. They don't, they don't need to stay in America. They can go to Somalia, no problem, right? They're just choosing not to, which means they are part of the United States. So the question is, what do you owe the United States? Sometimes what you owe, as my father said, who was a tremendous pacifist and grew up in Europe and fled fascism in Spain in 1936, and then, and then from, from France when the Germans came in, he said, sometimes you might owe your country your life. So you might owe your country a landing on D-Day uh, to defeat fascism in Europe. You might owe your country that. You might owe your country wearing a mask during a pandemic. There's no telling what you might owe your country in a crisis, right? But the idea that you owe nobody anything while reaping the rewards of this amazing society is just absurd. And, and but, but of course they're using that word because it sounds um, intimidating and sacred and unquestionable. Um, and, you know, the truth is that when those guys attacked the, the U.S. Senate building on January 6th, screeching about freedom and hang Mike Pence and all that ugliness, right? I'm sure what they had not thought of um, was that the previous time that that building was targeted was 9-11. The fourth airplane by Al-Qaeda that was forced down into a field in Pennsylvania by some very brave passengers. Who, who arguably died protecting our government. Um, that was the previous attack on our government and by extension, our system of democracy was Al Qaeda. And honestly, I don't see much difference between the deluded souls that did that on 9-11 and the deluded souls that uh, perpetrated an attack and an assassination attempt against our elected officials on January 6th. And they all use some version of, I want to be self-defining and autonomous and I'm willing to kill innocent people in order to achieve that. So has freedom become a toxic thing for American democracy, the concept? I think it's become a misunderstood thing. I don't think they're talking about freedom. They're arguing about their rights. So the Second, Second Amendment rights that, that govern, uh, that regulate uh, who, can own, who, who can own a gun and what they can do with it, those are rights. And rights are given by the group to the individual. Individuals can't claim rights. The group gives rights. And I can give you a really great example. So if there's a line at the security, you know, if you're if you're rushing through the airport, and there's a long line in the, at the security checkpoint. There's no law saying you can't cut the line, right? There's no law governing lines and, and you can cut the line if you want to, but the, the crowd will not let you do it. But if you run up to everyone in the line and say, my daughter's getting married tomorrow and I'm about to miss my plane, do you mind if I take the rights of going next through the through the through the checkpoint, I'm pretty sure people in that line will say, "Yeah, congratulations on your daughter. Please go right ahead, sir." Right. So rights are given by the group to the individual, and what people are arguing right now 
is that the government doesn't have the right to, to govern and to regulate and to control things that can kill other people. It's completely absurd. Of course it does. That's what it's there for. And in a democracy, unlike, say, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, in a democracy, you have recourse. If you don't like the way the government uh, regulates your rights, there's recourse. You can go to the courts or you can go to the ballot, bo ballot box and, and elect different kinds of people, which, of course, is what happened in 2016. But the idea that there's some third path that involves violence where you create your own rights and claim them through violence is completely absurd. It's the opposite of a free society. So basically the word is misused. And yet, and with this, I should, it's amazing how quickly this has gone, but uh, we'll, we have some people sending in questions about you. You, you go on at some length up in the book uh, about the Easter rising in, in Ireland against British oppression, colonial oppression, and on other groups uh, in, in your exploration, usually it, it kind of came off of the idea of the people that lived on the edges and nomads as opposed to settled people and how very often uh, people that were uh, not settled or, or smaller in numbers, not, not as strong as the more powerful. Right. Uh, and you, you even had some great stories about boxing in, in there. Um, invariably uh, won out or very often, you know, were victorious in the end because they had to overcome their disadvantages and, and be more, more wily, more, more nimble. And, and, um, and, and, and so you talked about, you also talked about groups like the Irish who, who fought against, you know, a much, much more powerful right. neighbor uh, and using violence in order to find their freedom. So, and going back to the right. American creation myth, we have a contradiction, don't we? Because freedom in our minds is associated with bloodshed. It's, it's consecrated through an act of blood, of, of the spilling of blood in order to obtain freedom. So can we ever get away from that? I, I, I think especially so as Americans, but I guess it's a, it's a broader, uh, philosophical and existential question. Yeah, I mean, the, the Americans in 1776 did not have recourse, right? They did not have representation in the British government, which was taxing them, right? The Irish did not have fair representation in the English government. And they were, they were occupied, their land was occupied by essentially a foreign power that was not willing to grant them autonomy and as they arguably deserved. So they took matters into their own hands. Um, when you try to make changes within a democracy where there is recourse, say through the courts or the ballot box, um, then using violence to achieve your aims as they did on January 6th is, a lot, is not legitimate. It's not, you, you, are, you are following a course of fascism, not a course of freedom. And what I would say is that there are societies, even democracies that are economically and politically, maybe even legally unfair um, the labor strikes in America 100 years ago, um, it was a very unfair society, particularly the immigrant labor, and they needed to resort to strikes, labor strikes in the streets to force a much more powerful government and military to concede basic human rights to them, right? Yeah. And so, so that was, and that, that fight was finally won by women. And when they started putting women on the front lines of those strikes, the, 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 the soldiers with fixed bayonets didn't know what to do. And that tipped the balance. And one policeman said, uh, ten, 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 one good cop can handle 10 men, but it takes 10 cops to handle one woman. So there are ways within a society that are not resorting to just outright bloodshed and murder, 
where changes can be made to happen. What I would say in the Easter Rising and in 1776 in this country, force was required because the powerful authorities were not listening to reason. Um, they were not conceding power in any way, and certainly not in any kind of democratic way. Yeah. Sebastian, um, just quickly before we go to the questions, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, as I said at the beginning, I feel like, you know, you're, you, you were in a way as a writer, uh, prove true the, the adage that all writers only ever write one book in a way, you know. It's usually, I think, the, ref, the, the quote is usually in reference, I think, to fiction writers or novelists, you know. And Gabriel Garcia Marquez always comes to mind, you know, with 100 Years of Solitude and all the other books sort of fed into it and became it. And, and, uh, and but in the, in the same way, it, it's, it's true with you, I think, you know, from the perfect storm through tribe and war to, to uh, and fire to, uh, to, um, to this book, to freedom, there are these themes you are exploring. And a lot of it has to do with notions of manhood, uh, and the related themes, you know, from boxing to, to violence to uh, fraternity and war, bloodshed, courage, all of that, retreat, surrender versus survival. Um, and uh, I wanted to know whether, you know, this OOV is continuing. I mean, what's, what is your next project? Do you know yet? Yeah, well, thank you. It's, it's very nice to be to be well understood by an interviewer. And I, I appreciate the thought you put into this. And yeah, I mean, you know, you could see all of human history as the history of the relationship between the individual and the group. We humans, unlike many other animals, have a very profoundly developed sense of individuality uh, and individual autonomy. But we are also cannot survive without being part of a group. And so therein lies the eternal human drama and how do you balance those two things which are both precious and tied into our human dignity. Um, I just very briefly, because I know we want to leave time for questions. Um, last summer, I had a sort of freak thing happen to me. I had an undiagnosed uh, aneurysm, a, a ballooning in an artery in my abdomen. It was a congenital disorder. And I'd had it my whole life and it ruptured uh, without warning, um, and I, um, I, I almost died. I should have died. I, I lost 90%, 90% of my blood into my abdomen. Um, it took it took an hour and a half to get to the to the nearest hospital. I was in a remote area. Uh, by the time I got there, um, I was I was dead basically. And my and my my memory of it is that my my dead father was over me talking to me comforting me. Now, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in anything. He was a physicist. Like, I'm a complete rationalist. And for the life of me, I can't understand what he was doing there. And they saved me. They cut a hole in my neck and pumped 10 units of blood into me. And by some miracle, they managed to bring me back and plug the leak. And I survived. Um, I managed to survive the next eight hours until they could fix me. And now my two little girls will have a father, for which I'm eternally grateful. And, and it's a painful thing to think about. Um, I, I want to write a book called Pulse about uh, what keeps us alive and what happens when we die. Oh, yeah, understandable. Absolutely. That's pretty profound, Sebastian. Glad you're here to tell us this. Thank you. There's a question. We have a number of questions. I'm going to have to just pick and choose quickly. Neil Johnson asks, interested in the juxtaposition of freedom and societal responsibility. Has COVID changed our perspective? of the balance between the two and are our societies now so large that the balance between personal freedom 
and personal responsibility cannot be effectively managed. Well, look, our government, our society is not so large that the government can't decide what road of the, what side of the road we drive on. And then if you don't drive on that side of the road in America, it's on the right-hand side, in the UK, it's on the left-hand side. But if you don't conform to that rule as dictated by the government, as mandated by the government, if, they don't, if you don't conform to that rule, you might kill somebody and you'll definitely be arrested, right? So yes, of course, we live in a huge society, but that doesn't mean we, I mean, we manage an enormous supply chain. Um, the, 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 the idea that the government does not uh, have the right to make a wise decision that, that protects our collective health as evidenced in what side of the road we drive on, the idea that it doesn't have that right when it comes to disease is just silly. And as I said, in a democracy, there's recourse. If you don't like the, the government mandates, you can go to court and petition the courts to strike down the government, the, the government regulations. That's how it works in a democracy. And otherwise, if you're going to take the benefits of all this, you you have to um, you have to you have to play fair. You have to you have to be a good citizen and and do what's expected of you. And if you don't like it, there's lots of other countries where there is no government to speak of, and no one will ever tell you how to do anything. Somalia, for instance. <laughs> yes, Somalia, for instance. <laughs> May they go there. Yeah. Um, so Charlie Maxwell thanks you for your work and says it has inspired my retraining as a psychotherapist and my research in that role in how we can best support returning veterans and civilians with traumatic experience. In the UK, Tribe is subtitled On Homecoming and Belonging. To what extent is your journey in writing of freedom also an exploration of homecoming and belonging? And if so, what did you learn about that? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I experienced in combat I mean, I've covered, like, like you, John, I've covered lots of wars that the United States has not been involved in, right? So most of my experience in war is as an individual person in a society that's at war. But with the US military, I experienced this really profound thing, which is being part of a unit. I mean, I wasn't a soldier, but I spent so much time with this platoon, which is a group of about 30, 40, 50 men. It was all men in my case. Um, I was part of this thing. And this is an ancient, our ancient human heritage. That's the ancient human survival group is usually around 30, 40, 50 people. And the, the, the intoxicating feeling of belonging, even with a group in a group that some of the individuals, you don't even like that much. But as one guy said, you know, we don't all like each other, but we'd all die for each other. Being part of that was a profound experience. And it was not, I was not able to reproduce it in any way until I went on this trek. It was a smaller group, it was usually four or so people, um, but we all owed the group uh, our, 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 best, our best efforts. And, and if we needed to get something done, someone had to do it. And that's what you owed the group. And so that, that to me was that, I mean, we're social primates and we're in a, when we're in a social context, particularly a survival context, it feels extremely good to be part of that group and to do whatever that group needs done in order to ensure that everyone survives. That's an almost intoxicating experience. Mm. Uh, there's a couple of questions, Sebastian, that are, are related. So I'm gonna just bundle a couple of them. Andrew Hughes asked, in order for Indians, and he's speaking here about Indians from India, uh, to overthrow British rule, would violence have been justified? And then Barbara Jenkins asks, what recourse is there for African-Americans in today's America? It's this theme of, you know, is about freedom and violence, I guess. Well, if the government uses violence unlawfully against you, arguably, 
you have the right to then take up arms against the government. I mean, the, the initial demonstrations uh, in Syria by parents of children who'd been imprisoned, children imprisoned and tortured by the secret police, the protests in the streets to get their children released that was then met with, with gunfire, machine gunfire by the government. Yes, I would say those people have the right to then use violence to defend themselves. I don't, I mean, I don't know about the history of, of India. I, I'm ashamed to say, I can't speak, I'm not informed about that. But if they were met with violence, I think eventually, yes, of course that's an option. I, you know, by far the, I mean, the, the strikers in the labor movement in America did not have to resort to violence. I mean, they were routing, you know, there were bricks thrown and things like that, but they weren't arming themselves with machine guns, right? Uh, for the most part. So I would say in a, in, a, in a healthy democracy, what you have is recourse to the courts, but of course in a healthy democracy, they're not in the business of oppression, uh, oppressing population groups. And in the case of African-Americans in this country, I think the protest, the Black Lives Matters protest came from the idea, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to weigh in on, on what I think about this, but it came from the very plausible idea that the authorities, that the police in particular, were unfairly targeting Af young African-American men and using excessive force and violence uh, and killing them at disproportionate rates and, and in essentially racist ways. And so at that point, uh, you try protests. And if the protests don't work, eventually people, someone's going to throw a Molotov cocktail. But I kind of get it. And, you know, had they been able to address th that injustice through the courts, um, you know, maybe it wouldn't have come to that. But the, but the African-American community has been petitioning the U.S. government for fairness for many, many years. And young Black men keep getting killed. So, I, you know, I kind of get it. Absolutely. Sebastian, there's a Julian Alcantara writes, he's referring to an article you wrote about the Spanish Civil War and the parallels between that and the present times. But he, he goes on to ask, and, he, and he, he goes on to say that that was both thought provoking and scary and ask, what lessons uh, are there to be learned about the defense of or the fight for freedom? Uh, what lessons should we learn from history about the defense of or the fight for freedom? Well, again, there's there's two kinds. The, there's the freedom that comes from being able to defend your society against an outside enemy that will kill or enslave you, right? But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the internal struggle to maintain a free and egalitarian and fair society where rulers don't have extra rights and can't, say, uh, kill their opponents or jail their opponents. As Donald Trump famously said, you know, throw Hillary in jail. That's not a democracy. You can't throw your political opponent in jail just because they're running against you, right? That's not a democracy. Thank God that didn't happen. But so what happened in Spain in 1936 was that the a progressive coalition won a, a fair election, not by a lot, but they won convincingly. Uh, and Franco and his fellow fascists declared that the election was invalid. It had been, quote, stolen and that only a violence would return uh, Spain to its proper, to its proper position, which would, would regain Spanish honor and keep the, the, the commun what he said, the communists and the Jews from taking over and ruining Spain. Weirdly, Franco was Jewish, right? But that did, in this sort of like iconography of, of fascism, apparently if you're sufficiently fascist, it doesn't matter that maybe you're also Jewish, you can, you, you can uh, like fascism sort of changes all the 
all the rules, right, uh, to its own ends. And so, you know, what can we learn that that there is a there's a there's a fascist playbook, and it it starts by questioning elections and collecting um, collecting people in a very close circle around the fascist leader, often friends and family. Um, the rules don't apply to them. Uh, and that if you're a political opponent, you're not just a political opponent, you're actually an enemy of the people, an enemy of the state. You don't even deserve citizenship. And, it, and eventually you don't even deserve to be alive. Like that's, that's how fascism works. This is ringing a lot of bells from recent events in our own country. We watched it happen right in front of us, almost as a form of entertainment until it was no longer entertainment. I'm talking about the, the Trump presidency, Sebastian. Yeah. Uh, of course, I mean, I never mentioned Trump in my article, but the, to me, the parallels were quite clear. I mean, you don't even need to say the man's name. It's more powerful if you don't. But the parallels between um, what he was trying to do, uh, what he was trying to do after he lost the election and what Franco succeeded in doing, uh, the parallels are perfect. And, um, you know, the, the Franco used a lot of disillusioned veterans from the Spanish, the, from the Spanish war in Morocco who had fought for 20 years unsuccessfully. Uh, I mean, can you hear the, you know, can you, you know, hear the echo of America, right? They'd fought for 20 years unsuccessfully. They felt that only they had fought for Spanish honor and that they were particularly eager to up uphold Spanish honor with violence. And Franco used that. There were a lot of veterans and mili uh, former military in the January 6th attacks in the attack in the US Capitol. And, um, you know, ultimately what, what made the difference between America, United States and Spain in 1936 was that our military, the American military didn't budge in their professionalism. They, all the generals, right? Um, all the officers, certainly, they were all very clear that they would not join this ridiculous movement on January 6th. In Spain, that was not so. And Franco got the majority of the military and that's what tipped the balance. Sebastian, I mean, we could talk for another hour or two, you know, and it would have been fun to do it over one of your campfires by all the railroad tracks. That's That would be the ideal uh, setting for one of your talks on this book. Um, I, I think we've probably run out of time, but uh, it's really been great. And, and I love the book. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And I look forward to Pulse um, as well, the next one. Um, and, and again, glad you're here to share that um, advance notice with us of the book. Thank you so much. Um, please say hi to Scott for me if you see him out there. I don't know if he'll be there. And uh, I, yeah. it was a real pleasure talking to you. Likewise, Sebastian. All the best. Thank you. John Lee, thank you so, so much for that brilliant, warm and very, very pertinent conversation here in Britain on Freedom Day. There's so much for us to think about and um, we're just so grateful and honored to host you both. And this fantastic book is out now in the UK. Um, it's called Freedom. And um, I know that Newman Books will help you if you want a copy. Um, but thank you very, very much. It's a book about a journey, but it's also about, um, about all these ideas that matter to all of us, um, especially right now. So thank you, John Lee, and thank you, Sebastian. And thanks everyone for your questions, which have been brilliant. I'm sorry we couldn't get to more of them. We could have listened to this conversation for much, much longer. But for now, um, it's just for me to say good night and thank you all. And we will see you again very soon.